2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back here on the Tom Hartman Program.
3: Just in the news, George Floyd's family just got a $27 million settlement from the city of Minneapolis. The jury selection in that trial continues with some very, very bizarre questions. But the good news in terms of the probability of Mr. Chauvin, Derek Chauvin, I think is his name, being held responsible for the murder of George Floyd is that the prosecution has successfully introduced a third-degree murder charge as well. Sometimes it's really hard to convict not just a police officer but anybody of first-degree murder, a premeditated murder, where, you know, somebody thought, okay, I'm going to kill this person, now I'm going to take this action, and then they take the action and then they kill them. In particular because this knee on the neck thing is widespread practice among police departments around the United States. And so they figured, okay, if the jury says, well, he didn't intend to kill him, he just intended to incapacitate him, and he kept his knee on the neck a little too long, uh, you know, he wasn't paying attention to the time, or, you know, if that's the kind of argument that they're gonna make, then the backup is, okay, then convict him of third-degree murder, which is, you know, like if you're texting while driving or you're drunk while driving and you kill somebody, uh, you still go to prison for a long, long, long time. So the prosecution is actually celebrating that, uh, that the, you know, that they've got that in and the defense is very upset about it. So, you know, we'll see. So I wanted to get some real up-to-date information what's going on with this. Carissa Lewis is on the line with us. Uh, Carissa is the National Field Director for the Movement for Black Lives. Their website is m4bl.org, m4bl.org. And the Twitter handle is MVMNT4BLKLives. And uh, Carissa, welcome to the program. And what's the holdup and what's the latest uh, news coming out of this uh, trial of this uh, apparently killer police officer?
0: Good afternoon, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on with you. And the Movement for Black Lives is an ecosystem made up of over 100 Black-led organizations across the country, including Black Visions Collective that is in Minneapolis. And so as a group that's holding space for local organizations, we're really leaning on our local folks to um, point us in the direction in terms of how folks respond to this moment. What I do know is that Historically, the same system that is creating the conditions where police officers kill black people with impunity is the same system that where folks are now relying on to provide justice in this moment. And so, you know, I think it's a challenging situation for for black folks to be in to continue to try and seek support and, and reprieve in a system that just has consistently caused harm in and of itself.
3: You mentioned, we're talking with Carissa Lewis, the national field director for the movement for Black Lives, you mentioned that you're coordinating the various organizations with regard to a response to this trial and the broader response to police violence in general. I mean, we we saw the murder of George Floyd kick off the largest social justice movement in terms of people in the streets and, and sustained activity in the history of America. What is your organization's advice, or what are you seeing happening? What do you think is the best or the least effective ways to message this and to react to this, both by black organizations, people who are directly affected by this, African Americans, and your
0: allies? So I know what is paramount for black folks in this moment is to continue to be a a soft landing place for folks who are, one, getting politicized in this moment, and two, suffering from the impacts of this moment. And so I know, for instance, folks in Minneapolis are gonna be advancing a series around healing spaces and activities where some of the folks who are harmed by the events of last summer really have a space to come together and to be in community and love upon each other. And so, you know, we're both trying to grapple with, like, what are the real impacts on our folks? And then what are the systemic changes we're, we're trying to seek? You know, and I think it's important to lift up that since May 2020, organizers in over 20 cities have generated hundreds of thousands of emails, testimonies, petition signatures. We've secured divestment of over $840 million from police departments, secured at least $160 million in investments in those same communities, and canceled contracts with police in schools, saving an additional $34 million. And so, you know, we we are going to continue to advance things like the BREEVE Act, which is model legislation that seeks to do a few things. It seeks to divest federal resources from incarceration and policing and, and criminal legal system harm, invest in new approaches to community safety, utilizing state incentives allocate new money to build healthy and sustainable, equitable communities, and hold political leaders accountable and enhance self-determination for black communities. So, you know, we we have a long game, and we're going to continue to stay rooted in that long game of a complete reimagination of public safety. Because what we know is that the overwhelming majority of black folks don't feel safe when they're in the presence of police. And so we have to reimagine that system and that institution completely.
3: Speaking of systemic changes, and and specifically in in policing and the criminal justice system, and I salute the great work that you all have done in trying to move, and, and in some cases successfully moving resources, largely financial resources, out of policing and into servicing people and reducing the need for policing. But what are the systemic changes that are at the top of your list? You know, greater integration of police forces, reduction of the use of SWAT teams, no-knock warrants. I mean, there's, there's this whole spectrum of stuff that, that I hear about constantly that we talk about in this program. What do you prioritize? Where do you think we need to be looking and, and working?
0: So I think each community has identified different priorities for them. We try to create the BREATHE Act in a way that it holds space for all of the different nuances that exist inside of local communities. Um, but, I, you know, I think broadly folks are trying to uh, shift the scale, size and scope of, of policing. And so that looks like demilitarization. That looks like ending cash money bail. So, again, each community has started to think about in their own context what are the most elegant next steps in terms of defunding the police
3: yeah and that phrase defunding the police has become highly politicized Republicans used it in attack ads against Democrats with some success with some failures in the last cycle uh, at least according to you know the press is there a discussion around changing that language or or on the other hand embracing that language in, in a way that causes a larger number of people to understand what it actually means
0: you know i think that this is an interesting debate that many folks have been inside of and i know that folks have even said the slogan you know we're pretty clear that it's not a slogan but a demand we actually don't as social movements have to move to the will of the elected officials they actually have to do the work to understand the shifting in the electorate, and the electorate is shifting. You know, many of the even Democratic candidates who lost, it was because they did not pick up a progressive agenda. And then we have cases like Cory Bush in St. Louis, where folks are standing pretty firmly on the ideals that are coming out of social movements and are finding great success. So the invitation is for elected officials to really listen to their electorate and their electorate, in many ways, is still calling for a defunding of the police.
3: Yeah, amen. And, and we're hearing that uh, echoing in many, many places. Carissa Lewis, the National Field Director of the Movement for Black Lives, m4bl.org, the website, and Movement for Black Lives, uh, the Twitter hand. Carissa, thank you so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: My pleasure. This is the Tom Hartman Program.
3: Back with more of the news of the day. Oh, and I've got a response to our caller about how rich Donald Trump is from CNN itself. So, you know, usually when people call in and cite some statistic or say, you know, I I read this on CNN, something like that, I, I usually, generally speaking, Take things at face value. I have found over the years, I've been doing this show since 2003, however many years that is, and that generally speaking, when people call in and they're citing something and they're quite certain of it, they're right. And so I give a lot of uh, deference. That is not always the case, though, when people who call themselves conservatives call in, which is kind of saddening We had a caller who said, you know, Donald Trump, essentially what his message was. He didn't say it in these words, but this is my translation of my understanding of his message. If you think I got it wrong, you know, give me a shout and correct me. But but I think essentially what he was saying was Donald Trump became president. He lost money while he was president. And he did that. He was willing to lose money while he was president because he has such love for our country. He's a noble guy. All right, that essentially is what he was saying. And he, and he said, you know, and the proof is over on CNN. And all you have to do is just go to CNN and you can see it. So I went to CNN. I just Googled this. You know, is Donald Trump less, less rich? And, and uh, boom, popped right up. It was a piece by Chris Saliza, the CNN editor at large. It was published Wednesday, September 9th, last year. And the headline was, Donald Trump is a lot less rich today than when he was elected president. So let me just give you the details on this. This is entirely based on Forbes magazine. Forbes magazine bases their ranking of who are the richest people in America based on best guesses. They have access to no documents. So none of this is can be considered true in quotes, but still this is what Donald Trump said. He said, whether I lost $2 billion, $5 billion or less, it doesn't make any difference. I don't care. I'm doing this for the country. I'm doing it for the people. That's, that's the quote that it opens with. And Salissa says, you know, thanks to the new Forbes 400 list released Tuesday, Trump is less rich than when he ran for the presidency. So here's what, here's what CNN actually said. And this is, again, is according to Forbes. In 2016, Trump was worth $3.7 billion, according to Forbes. That dropped to $3.1 billion in 2017 and held there for 2018 and 2019. In other words, for the first three years of his presidency and when he ran, according to Forbes, he was worth about $3 billion. But this year, 2020, keep in mind this was published two months ago. No, no, it was in September, about five months ago. So, But this year, Trump's net worth dropped to $2.5 billion. That $600 million decline led Trump to drop from the 275th richest person in America in 2019 to the 352nd richest in 2020, a drop of 77 points. Why the dip in Trump's fortune? The coronavirus pandemic. This is according to to Forbes, which is who is everybody's quoting and who is documenting this and who Donald Trump himself was quoting. Quote, the value of office buildings, hotels, and resorts have taken a hit among the pandemic. And thus, and this was a press release that Forbes released specifically about Donald Trump's wealth. In other words, let me translate that into plain English. If Donald Trump had done what South Korea did, or what Taiwan did, or what New Zealand did, or what Australia did, or got the coronavirus under control very quickly. 10 people have died in Taiwan. Taiwan has 24 million people. 10 people have died in the last year and a half from COVID. 10. The economy is back. The Chinese economy grew three and a half percent last year. The Taiwanese economy grew a little over two percent last year. If Donald Trump had done just the basic science, if he had followed the plan that the Obama administration left him, it literally was called the pandemic playbook. If he had followed that, if he had gotten everybody in America to wear a mask, which is what the Taiwanese did, if he had immediately shut down any of the congregate settings, you know, restaurants, places like that where people can get infected, and moved immediately to you got to eat outdoors, you know, if you're going to eat that kind, of, those kinds of things. If he had done the stuff that Taiwan did, that Hong Kong did, that China did, that Australia did, that New Zealand did, he wouldn't have lost all that money. But instead he didn't because he's too lazy. He played golf two out of every three days he was president. His daily schedule showed on most days absolutely nothing. He didn't even bother to take national security briefings for nine out of 10 days throughout his presidency. He did nothing. He basically sat around, had long phone conversations with people. I mean, this guy is chronically lazy. And as a result, a half million Americans died. And Donald Trump lost $600 million in the value of his hotels because people aren't going to hotels anymore. And now they're trying to sell some of his properties and they can't even find buyers. They put the Trump Trump Hotel in D.C. on the market. You know, last year, nobody wants to buy it, at least at the price they're asking for. I see a bankruptcy sale in Donald Trump's future. Keep in mind, it was just a few weeks ago that they blew up his old casino, literally, physically blew it up.
2: You're listening to the Tom Hartman program.
3: So if our caller is still listening, I hope I answered any questions you may have. <laughs> On the line with us is Congressman Roe Khanna, Vice Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. Kana K H A N N A dot house dot gov is his website. You can tweet him at rep as in Representative Rep. Ro Khanna and Congressman Khanna. Welcome back. I'm I'm curious your thoughts on everything that's happened. It appears to me that these 40 and 50 year political cycles that are noted by people from Kondraki on down, that the cycle is turning, that Americans are recovering from Reaganomics and saying, okay, we get it. This has been a scam for 40 years. We don't want it anymore. And that we're, the entire nation is moving back toward, you know, something like the New Deal or the Great Society in terms of our perspective on what government should do and where we're at and where we should go. I'm curious your thoughts on that and and, and anything else that's, you know, up this week or in general.
4: I agree with you that there's been a rejection of the Reagan framework, but there hasn't been necessarily as an embrace yet of the New Deal. I mean, the uh, American Rescue Act that we passed was terrific in terms of providing child tax allowance, in terms of uh, providing aid to states and local governments. But it didn't have the minimum wage increase. It didn't have some of the structural changes. So I think they've said, okay, we're not going to have Reaganomics, which is just tax cuts and gearing these packages to the very, very wealthy. But we're also not yet embracing the kind of structural reform that we need. That needs to be the next step is hope.
3: Yeah, Congressman, I we really need you to use your phone for the audio. Yeah. So, you know, time will tell if we're at the New Deal, I suppose. Is there anything you wanted to specifically talk about or should we start picking up phone calls here? Anything you wanted to share well, I mean, with people I mean, about
4: this? You know, the American Rescue Act was a pretty, pretty big deal. And the child allowance, which is $3,000 per child, though temporary. I mean, if that once it's in the code, if we can make that permanent, that's a significant, that's a basically Social Security for children. I mean, it's every child born mm-hmm. in America is going to get $3,000 a year for food and clothing and when you look at the expansion of the earned income tax rate, we look at that 70 percent of that package is going to go to working class and middle class families a total reversal as you put it of Reaganomics, where these packages under trump 60 70 80 percent were going to corporations and business owners so we have a lot to celebrate the question is can we make some of these changes per- permanent and then beyond the checks can we have structural
1: change
3: Great. So let's pick up some phone calls here. Jeremiah in Coalport, Pennsylvania. You are on the air with Congressman connor
1: Hi uh, Congressman. Um I was wondering if uh, you could get on the same page with your fellow Democrats and every time you mention the COVID relief package, say which Republicans voted against. The $1400 checks which Republicans voted against because you know had You all voted against the $1,200 checks, which had, you know, corporate goodies that the Republicans wanted. They would be telling the American people that you voted against giving them $1,200 checks.
4: You're absolutely right. I appreciate that. And um, I tried to do that when I was on Wolf Blitzer a couple nights ago and saying, well, well, what part uh, is Kevin McCarthy against? I suggested his tactic is to throw in the word socialism after every four words into every sentence. But, you know, does he oppose the $1,400 checks? Does he oppose the $3,000 checks to children? Is he opposed to the money to get vaccines in every American's arm? But I, I like your suggestion that uh, we should say $1,400 checks, which Republicans oppose, which is factual, uh, true, and drives it home. I mean, you know, I was talking to the speaker the other day, and she said, you know, the Republicans will be the first ones out at ribbon cuttings celebrating the money that's going to the cities and their districts. And they have this hip- hypocritical attitude where they block things into. Congress. They uh, send those fundraising emails out to their base. And then in their district, they show up claiming credit. And, and we need to make sure they don't get away with that.
3: Yeah, we saw Senator uh, Wicker from uh, Mississippi, I believe it is, tweeting out to his constituents about how this was going to help restaurants in Mississippi, as if he was behind it when he had trash talked it and voted against it. It's, it's really breathtaking.
4: Um, and the other and- thing is, that, you know, the Democrats need to actually toot our own horn and, and talk about what, what we've done. I mean, I, I think there's this false modesty. You can't be modest in politics. You have to let, have to do good things and then communicate it. So this morning I had an op-ed in my local paper talking about how my county is going to get $300 million from this, uh, of both of my counties I represent, and laying out exactly what each city in my district is going to get. And I, you know, I think the Republicans, unfortunately, are better at, at propaganda or claiming credit for what they do when they... We don't do anything. We get the substance right. And then we don't talk about it enough. And, and that's equally important.
3: Justin in Summit Hill, Pennsylvania, you're on the air with Congressman Connor.
1: Hi, Congressman Connor. I've been looking and paying attention, like mansions, aspects and different things like that. And uh, Boebert and Loeffler, who left. I was wondering if you think it would be decent to embolden the um, emoluments clause, and make it applicable to representatives, senators, and the executive.
4: Hmm. Interesting, Justin. So making the emoluments clause applicable to Congress? Is
3: that... Yeah, that's what he's, he's suggesting.
4: I mean, I think it should be. I agree with you that there's no reason that someone in the Congress or Senate should profit uh, of uh, their official work. Uh, now, Kenner, I mean, I don't think there's that many egregious cases of that, but maybe there are, and certainly that should be prohibited and illegal, and, and you should be prosecuted if you're using your public office to, to uh, enrich yourself.
3: Zach in North Hollywood, California, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Morning,
1: guys. So good to speak with you again, Roe. You know, my, my wife, Kathy, is really smart, and she's really scared and worried about our country and our, the obstruction of the vote. Her question is, why can't reconciliation be used to pass H.R. 1 and gut the filibuster?
4: Well, I, I think we definitely need to remove the filibuster. That's the only way that we can pass H.R. 1. The question is, are we going to have the votes in the Senate to remove the filibuster? Now, Senator Manchin has been constructive in saying that at least required the talking filibuster. So uh, that would make it harder to filibuster most things. But I think that unless we get the White House saying that they're uh, ready to remove the filibuster, we're not going to get much done. I mean, minimum wage increase. Some of us, I pushed, as some of you may know, I wrote a letter with 23 other members of Congress urging Vice President Harris to overturn the parliamentarian. They said they didn't want to do that. Well, what is the alternative? To, I mean, if you want to get 60 votes in the Senate to raise the wage, forget 15, which we want, even if to raise it to 12 bucks. Romney wants you to adopt e-Verify, a poison pill, which basically would mean that those who are undocumented would still be in the United States. We're not going to deport them, but would have even less bargaining power. And- would further depress wages. So that's not going to be a starter. So the way to get minimum wage increase, the way to get a this voting right the requires Tom eliminating Harding
3: the billboard. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations on multiple systems on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash hartman. That's netsuite.com slash hartman.
2: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
3: So let's continue picking up phone calls here from our Free Speech TV viewers. One of your constituents and regular callers here, Joe, in Cupertino, California. You are on the air with your congressman. Representative Conn, I was watching your speech on the 13,
1: 18, or 19 bill pass. It was very eloquent speaking of the needs of the children. I had two, and I appreciate all that you've done. My question is, well... I'm just wondering what you know about the potential of relocating some of the unserved, um, the children at the border. I think we have an opportunity to bring them here and if we can at least be Americans and take care of them, like we should, you know, maybe you can give me some information. I'm just waiting to hear when they're supposed to arrive because I've heard that this is imminent. Do you know?
4: The children coming to Moffitt field in our district is a issue, uh, that we're looking into. I mean, the Department of Homeland Security has said that they need spaces to house these children, and now the challenge has been that we don't have in Congress enough resources to make sure that the children are being properly cared for at these facilities, at the refugee resettlement facilities, and that there's enough effort to connect them with families, because many of them have some family in the United States. So I've been in touch with the Department of Homeland Security and told them if they do use our district as a site to keep these children in Moffitt Field, I want to be kept closely apprised of what they're going to be doing, what the conditions are, what resources they need. And we need to make sure that those children are dealt with with uh, the utmost humane care.
3: Great. William in Long Beach, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Connor.
5: Hi, Congressman Connor. It's uh, great to finally talk to you. Does the abuse in ICE Detention Center prevent migrants and immigrant communities from
1: reaching out to law enforcement regarding the abuse of them by mafia, cartel, and syndicate organizations? Do the narco-fascists use the ICE Detention Centers as a boogeyman for undocumented communities? What does law enforcement have to do to regain the trust of undocumented communities? Do you think that sort of hopelessness is a tool
3: for recruitment for these organizations? Thank you. Great questions, Wayne.
4: Is the question Williams asking that are people who are engaged in drug trafficking using minor children to try to come across the border? Is that I think he's
3: your, I, I think he's uh, he's asking if fear of abuse by ICE is causing people to f- shy away from reporting to American law enforcement when they're the victims of crimes I or when the cartels are trying to recruit them.
4: William, you're absolutely correct on that, and it's one of the actual basis for the laws of federalism, of sanctuary cities, which we, the Republicans often distort. And that is to say that if uh, people were afraid of reporting, then we wouldn't have cooperation with law enforcement, and you now have that happening with ICE because of draconian policies. And that reform will actually, I think, help us get greater compliance and control over the border.
3: Let's hope so. It just makes so much sense. Representative Ro Khanna. Welcome back. Congressman Ro Khanna, Vice Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, taking your calls for the hour. Uh, let's see here, Jeff in San Francisco. Jeff, you are on the air with Representative Connor.
1: Yeah, I was wondering if there's a possibility that, you know, you and maybe five other ones, Bowman and, and the squad, the next bill that comes up, say you're not going to sign it unless minimum wage, Medicare for all and uh, some other you know, caveat on there. We need some home runs. These are too many little bit singles who want to use a sports analogy. And I think we really need to use the power we have. We, elections have consequences. Why can't we, uh, you know, use the power of, you and, know, four or five, and, and then it's not going to get through the Senate, but could
4: we at least try that one time?
3: And maybe statehood Jeff, for Jeff, I, I hear you, and
4: I, I appreciate that. Let me uh, suggest what happened in the, in this bill. If you remember the original bill was one trillion dollars which is what susan collins and others were talking about and the progressives made it very clear that that was not acceptable and that any movement below 1.9 trillion would not be something that would get the house progressive support the progressives also made it clear to the speaker that if fifteen dollars isn't in the house version we wouldn't be able to to pass it uh the progressives made it clear uh, to the senate that if there was any lowering of checks uh and the threshold, uh, we would oppose it. Now, we lost on the $15 minimum wage in the Senate. I mean, I want to be clear on that. But we won a lot also leading up to that final moment. The press covered the moderate senators in the last couple of concessions, but those were minor compared to the entire frame being progressive. All of that is to say that we are going to push now for $15 either at the def- National Defense Authorization, which I'm p- trying to see if we can attach, or in the next reconciliation. We went so far as writing a letter to uh, Senator Vice President Harris to try to get her to overturn the parliamentary. We're going to continue to push. But don't think that the progressives aren't willing to push or fight. It's just a question of how far do you draw the line uh, because you don't want to tank the entire process or delay checks getting to people for for months. But uh, we're absolutely planning to continue the fight on the 15 wage in the next uh, pieces of legislation.
3: Janine in Fort Myers, Florida, you're on the air with Representative Kahn.
1: Hi, thanks, gentlemen, for taking my call. I'm just wondering, why don't Democrats demand a recall election of Governor Greg Abbott in Texas, whose policies have hurt millions of Texans like Republicans did with Greg Davies in California?
4: That's a great Great point, Janine. I I think I'm all for it. I don't know if you can. I I don't know Texas law well enough, but if there's a recall provision, I definitely think that that's a justified recall.
3: Kelly in Divide, Colorado. You're on the air with Congressman Conn.
0: Hey, thanks. Congressman, I am wondering, when you're negotiating
1: with Republicans on various aspects of a bill, and they want some changes that Democrats agree to make, but no Republicans vote on the bill. No vote, no Republicans vote for that. Can't you just go back and strip out where Republicans voted and changed in the bill and say, hey, if you're not going to vote for this, we're taking your stuff back out. Thanks a lot.
4: Kelly, you can, but then you need to vote and have the votes to pass it. And a lot of times, some of the things that the Republicans add in are also things that some of the moderate Democrats want. So, I don't think that the bill we passed in reconciliation has anything that just Republicans want but no Democrats want. I think it was an effort of Schumer to figure out how does he get to 51 votes and Pelosi to figure out how does she get to the 218 votes in in the House.
3: Jonathan in Portland, Oregon, you're on the air with Rep. Khanna.
1: Hi. So I wanted to know what, if anything, Congress might be doing to protect local pharmacies and get them, encourage them to spearhead the vaccine rollout. They are infinitely more effective than big chains They're especially in North Dakota and West Virginia. They're always at being crushed by the big chains. There's this myth that the big chains are, are better. But in fact, in, in Maine and in Oklahoma, the officials pulled the plug on their Vaccine rollout and got local pharmacies to do it it 's the local pharmacies, and they're also a better model for democracy and for and for business in general
4: Jonathan that's a brilliant point uh, our the American rescue plan this is why it gives the funding to the counties and the cities and the states for vaccine distribution and If the cities or states feel that they can contract with a local pharmacy to, for the for getting the shots in people. And the people, they have the flexibility to do that. And so it's really an issue that people can take up with their city and state governments.
3: Congressman, we just have 20 seconds. When do you expect that money to start arriving in these cities and states?
4: Well, the president, as you know, signed it, and I hope and expect that it'll start hitting uh, next week and that people will start getting their checks in direct deposit within 10 days. And so the the one thing that objectively is that this president has been very competent in getting things done and and has surrounded himself with competent people so that's the hope yeah
3: thank god what a change huh it's amazing (laughs) congressman ro Khanna is with us for the hour our national progressive town hall meeting taking your calls Khanna k-h-a-n-n-a khanna.house.gov rep
2: Ro Khanna on twitter you're listening to the tom hartman program
3: Welcome back, Congressman Roe Khanna, the uh, the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House, taking your calls for the hour in our nationwide progressive town hall meeting. Daryl in Denville, New Jersey, you are on the air with Rep Khanna.
1: Good afternoon. I've heard a a lot of talk about requiring uh, civics and K through 12 education. And as I listen to the congressman, it occurs to me that we need more than just civics. We have this this misunderstanding in this country, I think voters do that, you know, that there are no limits to power, that when you're in charge, you can basically do whatever you want. There are no limits, ethical or otherwise. And it's just not true. And when I hear you discuss why certain things can't be passed through reconciliation. I mean, it sounds reasonable, and I think the country would benefit if we saw more of that on TV and film, etc., and less, you know, Kardashians and uh, other, you know, dribble that we see on television, even punditry. I would rather he, see something entertaining that teaches ethics over the punditry that we see, even on stations with which, uh, with which I agree. So that's that's just my uh, comment. And I guess you could respond to it if, if you like.
0: Bring
3: back civics Darryl, education I... then. That...
1: I I agree with you very much. At first, I thought you were
4: going to say the congressman needs more civic education, but I I appreciate that you did take a a shot at me. But I I agree with you that we need to uh, allow people to understand the details of the process and have more conversations like we have on Hartman. And we frankly need to do more conversations in getting past social, social reality bubbles. You know, I went on Ben Shapiro's podcast, and we had a a civil, frankly, exchange of the minimum wage. And it was controversial at first. Why are you going on? And then I said, look, if you're not going to try even to reach people across these bubbles, then what hope is there for democracy? So I fundamentally believe in, as you put it, education, but also looking for opportunities to have the rational exchange of ideas.
3: Mary in Las Vegas, you're on the air with Representative Kana.
1: Good morning, gentlemen. I was wondering if there's any chance of getting uh, DeJoy out of the post office.
4: We're we're working on it. Thank you for the question. I mean, the ch- challenge is it's not Congress's call. It's the call of the uh, Board of Governors. And so uh, President Biden is going to get appointments on a new board and we can continue to hold DeJoy accountable. And then ultimately, it's, it's the board's call in terms of getting someone new. But there clearly have been huge violations. I mean, put aside the election, there are other enormous violations that need to be
3: looked into. Tim, in St. Cloud, Minnesota, you're on the air with Representative O'Connor.
1: Thank you very much for taking my call, gentlemen. Representative O'Connor, I want to ask you a question. So what happens to the millions upon millions of people who are out there on the streets without a bank account? How do they get their stimulus check? How does that happen?
4: Tim, it's a very good question. They are able to come and work with their congressional office to be able to get it. And they can work through either a social security number or a tax ID number. And the Treasury Department will work to figure out where they can cash that check. But it is a challenge. And there are provisions. And what I would say in that situation is go to your member of Congress's office and they can help
3: you. Ryan in Modesto, California, you're on the air with Representative Connor.
1: Hey, Congressman, I I wanted to to see if if you guys would push really hard to get the minimum wage increase into the the next piece of must-pass legislation like the, the defense bill or something. If I'm not mistaken, the last time it was raised in 2007, it was part of like funding for the Iraq war or something completely unrelated to the minimum wage.
4: You're, you're absolutely right. It was in the National Defense Authorization Act. I'm on the Armed Services Committee. I'm going to try to put it in the National Defense Authorization Act. Here's the problem, though. They're going to try possibly passing the National Defense Authorization Act with Republican votes. I mean, the fact that you have a Democratic president and that we would still have a $740 billion defense uh, budget is... Uh, is wrong. I mean, we, it's over 50% of discretionary spending. So if the budget comes in too high, uh, they may try a strategy where they're trying to pass the budget, not with Democratic votes, but with Republican votes. And then if they do that, they won't ever uh, attach a uh, wage increase. So it's really going to be driven by the White House. And there are two questions to ask. One, are they willing to offer a defense budget they could pass with Democratic votes? And two, uh, and, and you know, you, I know you have Mark Pocan on often. He's been brilliant on uh, looking at strategic uh, cuts in defense to put it instead in job creation in communities. Uh, and two, uh, are they willing then to attach a minimum wage increase to a must-pass bill? I'm going to have uh, every effort to, to see that we can do
3: it. Cool. Stephen in Oakland, California. Hey, Stephen, you're on the air with Representative Connor.
1: Yeah. Hi, guys. I'm very much involved in single payer here and the new single payer legislation, <clears throat> excuse me, AB 1400 in California. The Relief Act is really great, except for the billions being shuffled off to the insurance corporations. Regarding that, we're wondering what's happening with the this session's version of your 5010, the ACA waiver bill. Are you and are you aware of efforts to pressure Governor Newsom to ask that the Biden administration get a little busy on that?
4: Steve, thank you for your questions and your activism in Oakland. Uh, two points. You're absolutely right that the uh, one of the problems with the American Recovery Act, though it had a lot of good things, I mean, it extended COBRA payments, subsidized COBRA. You, you, COBRA is one of the most inefficient, expensive forms of health care, not even the Affordable Care Act, uh, and that money goes directly to health insurance. Uh, we were advocating uh, that instead people should have gotten Medicare, who were who, the $15 million who lost private insurance. But... You know, Bernie Sanders didn't win the presidency, and, and we have President Biden, and he didn't run on Medicare expansion, and that's uh, uh, the the policy. Now, I agreed with the policy of lim- limiting the... Uh, uh, ACA to 8.5 percent of income, and that's a positive. Uh, but again, uh, it would have been f- far cheaper to have people on Medicare, one-fourth the cost even after the increased subsidies on the uh, with the ACA. Uh, we are going to be reintroducing the uh, State Waiver Act. Uh, that would allow for single pairs at a state level, uh, and it would give uh, G- Governor Newsom the opportunity to do it in his state.
3: Michael in Leesville, Louisiana, you're on the air with Representative Conham.
1: Representative, I I know you don't have this problem in California, but why can't uh, a federal law against marijuana be removed? Thank
4: you. Michael, it should be removed. Uh, What I would uh, say is that the leader on this issue has been Senator Cory Booker. Uh, He, along with Barbara Lee and I, have a bill called the Marijuana Justice Act. It would uh, legalize uh, marijuana, remove it from Schedule C. Uh, and as importantly, it would throw out the convictions of so many black and brown uh, young uh, individuals who have an arrest record because of minor possession of uh, marijuana. Uh, Google it. Uh, look it up. It's it's really a, a terrific bill that uh, Senator Booker has put forward. And my hope is we can uh, get that passed and get support around it.
3: Uh, uh, Brian do, in Middletown, New Jersey. To... Brian, you're on the air with Representative Connor.
1: Thank you for taking my call, guys. Uh, Congressman, I have a question for you. You were talking about messaging before, about getting out and making sure people know what the Democrats are accomplishing. The the thing I'll say to you is that I think we also have to engage in some counter-messaging because people have this misperception that the Republican Party is better for the economy when the facts belie that. When I tell people that every Republican president, going back to to Hoover, and probably the fact that has had a recession on their watch, nobody believes me. And the Republicans constantly get away with this idea that vote for us, because at the end of the day, we're better for the economy than the Democrats.
4: Brian, you're absolutely correct, uh, and you're factually correct. When Democrats come into power, uh, usually economic growth improves, uh, the wages go up. You even have the markets do well, and that's because the economy, the American economy, is ultimately driven by consumer demand, and workers and consumers are not two separate entities. So the more money you put in the hands of workers, the better it is for the economy. Uh, And we need to make the case that the Democratic Party is not just for fairness, but for growth.
3: Congressman Ro Khanna is with us for the hour, our National Progressive Town Hall meeting here on the Tom Hartman program. Congressman Khanna is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You can find his website at Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A.house.gov, d- uh, and you can tweet him at Rep, as in Representative Rep, Ro, R-O, Khanna. We'll be right back with more of your calls in just a moment.
2: You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
3: It's the place where despair is not an option. The Tom Hartman Program, our national town hall meeting with Representative Roe continues in just a moment. And welcome back. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. You're on the air with Representative Khanna.
1: Hey. Happy Friday, Tom and Congressman Connor. Thanks, as always, for the town hall. Um, Congressman Khanna, I agree that um, this rescue package is going to help, help a lot of people. But as you say, we need to keep moving forward aggressively and progressively. And uh, one area I want to ask you about, Congressman, is agriculture. You know, Mexico just announced a ban on glyphosate and GMO corn. And I believe the EU already bans over 90 pesticides and herbicides that the EPA still allows here. Um, so, as the House sponsor of the Farm Systems Reform Act, how do we break up Big Ag and the chemical companies' stranglehold on our food supply, and start implementing a green new deal for farming? And finally, Congressman, do you have any thoughts on the controversies surrounding um, the latest controversies surrounding uh, Dow Chemical's 13D, also known as Tylon? Thank you, Tom and Congressman.
4: Well, thank you for that, Jeff. I uh, got on the Agriculture Committee so I could have an impact on this. I think it's important to start from first principles. When we're talking about agriculture and farming, uh, we need to be mindful of a lot of the small farmers and the family farmers uh, who are suffering because of big uh, agriculture. I mean, they aren't getting the uh, price uh, that they uh, need. They often aren't even making the costs of what they're producing. Uh, And a lot of times, these big corporations are in these states, and their owners don't even Live in the states, and so all of the environmental damage that's taking place with the pesticides or other runoffs uh, are not impacting their own community. So, what is the solution? One, of course, we need to make sure that the corporations are held liable uh, for the pollution, not the contract farmers. And that's why uh, the Farm Reform Act changes it and puts the liability on the corporations. We need to make sure that there's antitrust uh, protection so that they can't take advantage of the contractor farmers. And then we need to pay farmers uh, for uh, environmentally sustainable practices uh, for regenerative agriculture. Uh, In in short, I think you can have a pro farmer policy uh, that. Can get popular support and isn't tilted to big ag.
3: Grant Everett, Washington, you're on the air with Representative Connor.
1: I was wondering what is being put forth to help protect our
5: environment and natural resources? All this devastation in the West due to wildfires, how can we put our energy towards that?
4: Well, Grant, I appreciate that. As you may know, I'm chairing the Environment Subcommittee of the Oversight Committee of this Congress, and we've got a great committee with AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Cory Bush. And one of the first hearings that we're going to have is on texas and what happened there in terms of the energy grade where and how do we weatherize and climatize our infrastructure and we're also going to be looking at the wildfires that you raised and how we make sure that in my view that pg and e should be a public utility so that they have the investments uh, that would have put the lines underground or would have made them safe and would not have led to the kind of uh fires that we saw uh, all of these things are things we're going to be investigating and then proposing uh Action that, that can mitigate the, the impact.
3: Yeah, this, this this seems so important that that utilities, instead of siphoning money out for investors, be there for the communities. Um, I'm I'm very hopeful. But you can very pull simply, this but
4: off. but correctly, Tom. I mean, it's, it is really that simple. Are you going to give more shareholder profits? or Are you going to make the investment in basic safety for your community?
3: Yeah. Amen. We'll be right back with more of your calls for Congressman Ro Khanna in our National Town Hall meeting here at Progressive Town Hall meeting here on the Tom Hartman program. Stick around. We'll be right back. You can find his website at Khanna, dot You can tweet him and say hi at Rep Ro Khanna. Ro Khanna, the Vice Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, taking your calls for the hour. And Spence in Clarksburg, West Virginia, you are on the air with Congressman Connor.
5: Hey, thank you for eating, uh, speech, and we really enjoy your program there. Uh, I have a question. I wonder if, as uh, Sen- as president of the Senate, also Nancy Pelosi, could they change the seating in the uh, room to be alphabetical order instead of everybody sitting in each section? I think it would be do a lot to make America united, to make us feel like Uh, the old days, and when we try to talk with each other and try to get our country back on track. God bless y'all. Listen to your answer. Have a wonderful weekend.
4: Thank you for that. You know, senator seats are assigned, and they aren't assigned uh, based on party. the House, you're supposed to be able to sit anywhere you want. And actually, uh, there is a lot of uh, walking uh, to the other side of the aisle. It's not quite as... uh, uh, as, as polarized uh, on the House floor as uh, people make it seem on, on, on television. But the, the challenge to me, is, in my view, is not sort of a challenge of space and how we imagine space and seating. The challenge is you literally have a Republican Party that is unwilling to support policies, that many Republicans support, uh, such as an increase in minimum wage, such as the stimulus checks for COVID relief, such as uh, gun background safety checks. And so I think there is a fundamental challenge when you have Republicans unwilling to support even policies that Republican voters support uh, how we make progress. And I don't think uh, just shuffling the spacing or seating assignment will fix that.
3: Teresa in Paha'o, Hawaii. If I'm saying that right, Teresa.
0: Uh, it's Pah- Pahoa, Hawaii. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, my question to the representative is, why, how, and why is there a sidebar of garnishment on the stimulus, um, receiving a stimulus check for any sort of outstanding private debt? Why was that put in? Uh, I'll I'll take your answer off the off the air. Thank you. Bye bye.
4: Teresa, I, in all honesty, I'm not aware of that garnishment provision if there was something added to that. Tom, are you aware? If not, I, I can uh, no. have our staff look into it and get back to you.
3: Yeah, I am, I am completely unfamiliar with that. I'm sorry. Uh, Sean just said in my ear that it was on the news yesterday, but I, I've missed it too. <laughs> Joe in Parker, Colorado, you are on the air with Representative Kana.
1: Representative Collins, I was a union member for thirty eight years. I had due process rights, I had permanent status after for two years, my union negotiated working conditions. I have a defined benefit retirement. I would urge you to sponsor legislation to eliminate rights of work
3: and strengthen the union movement in America. Roll back Taft Hartley.
4: Joe, absolutely I agree with you. I'm on those bills. Uh, Mark Pocan, who is one of the leaders on these issues, has a workplace uh, democracy bill, which which would do that. Uh, The PRO Act, which we just passed, uh, would do that. And, uh, you know, in terms of uh, one of the good provisions of the American Recovery Act was uh, helping uh, pensions that could have gone under if it weren't for the support that we actually got. And uh, it's going to save a lot of pensions, which were in trouble because of the economy.
3: Mike in Fontana, California, you're on the air with Rep Connor. Yes,
1: Connor. I'm just wondering,
3: what is, do you think that this uh,
1: recall for our governor and our attorney general is going to go through?
4: Mike, I don't. Uh, in fact, I saw polling today Uh, suggesting that uh, over 50 percent are not going to vote to recall Gavin Newsom. I think the only 30 some percent were. It's just such a waste of time, such a waste of resources, such a waste of energy at a time where we ought to be assisting the governor in uh, dealing with the pandemic. Uh, We're um, distracting the energy and wasting the resources of the state. That's that's what's unfortunate.
3: Rich in central Woolley Washington, you're on the air with Representative Connor.
5: Uh, Gentlemen, whereas tax policy is as much about influencing behavior as it is collecting revenue, I'd like to hear you two spitball some ideas on how we can discourage corporatist monopoly and encourage worker co-ops through tax policy.
4: Uh, Rich, uh, that's probably going to require more thought than a 30 second uh, answer. But I do think that it needs to be one, a combination of antitrust law so that we incentivize smaller businesses. Uh, But maybe you can incentivize on capital gains, taxing structure based on employee ownership so that the more employees that have ownership, maybe you could have favorable capital gains treatment. I do agree with you that we should incentivize how we have broader equity for people in, a, in the economy.
3: Congressman, in the last 30 seconds, what should we be looking for and where should we be directing our personal activism over the next week or two?
4: Tom, I, I think it's so important that we not give up this fifteen dollars fight. I mean, a, a fifteen dollars wage uh, means uh, seven dollars more per hour, seven dollars fifty cents more per hour. So, fifty some dollars more a day means about two hundred fifty dollars more a week, a thousand a month. That's real money, and that's the type of structural change that we need.
3: Um, Amen. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us and doing such a great job. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I
4: always enjoyed it. I'm glad we got the video to work.
3: Me too. It's it's great. Uh, Yeah, and the folks watching it, really appreciate it. (music) Maine in Chicago. Hey, Maine, what's on your mind? When Reagan said the words
6: trickle down, and when the mayor of Chicago says we're going to redline, don't they have to reverse those by saying we will no longer uh, trickle down and we will no longer red line in order to become null and void?
3: Well, redlining was outlawed, redlining being the practice where uh, banks would get together and draw red lines around particular neighborhoods and, say, and, and all agree not to lend anybody money in those neighborhoods. And usually those lines, 90, 99% of the time, those lines corresponded with race. That's been illegal for a couple of decades. There are some substantial suggestions that it's continuing, that it's still going on. And, you know, there needs to be more aggressive enforcement of the illegality of redlining. With regard to trickle down, I think that we're seeing this growing movement now across the United States to tax the rich, which is, and, and to give more money to the working class, you know, uh, raise the minimum wage and things like that. Those are all absolute, right in your face repudiations of trickle down. So I'm not sure they need to say the words mean, but I think they're doing it. Don't you get that sense?
6: Well, yeah, I kind of sense that they're doing it. But I would like them to, to say we're no longer going to trickle down. Not yeah. no, no longer going to use the trickle-down economic standard that we're under. And that I yeah. would like to hear the mayor say, like here in Chicago, say redlining will no longer be permitted here in the city of Chicago on the west and south sides. Because it's different. Yeah. You should see the difference of the city yeah. of Chicago. You go up on one of these tall buildings, you look west and south, And it's barren. There's no Mm. sky cranes nowhere. You look north and northwest, and sky cranes all over the place. They're Mm. putting up buildings that you can hardly get a piece of paper between them. So, you know, I I, I get it, man.
3: yeah. Yeah. It's like what Bill Clinton said, you know, the era of big government is over and we're ending welfare as we know it, you know, which were wrong. I mean, I but at the time, that was the sentiment. America was in love with Reaganomics, or at least more than 50 percent of Americans were and a lot of Democrats were. Now that we look back and we say, you know, that was that was wrong. That was corrupt. That was, you know, not not uh, specifically Clinton, although he had his problems. But I agree with you. I think that they need to be saying these things out loud. and They need to be saying them loud and and uh, emphatic. Totally with you. Maine, thank you very much for that. Charles in Hollywood, Florida. Hey, Charles, you got you have the last minute of the show. What's up?
5: Okay, well, I'm just wondering if Merrick Garland is going to come in and he's going to do at least something like what the DOJ did under Barack and um, Eric Holder. And what I mean is when they went into Ferguson, they uncovered a lot of um, emails. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm calling them today is because about the corruption in the system. We're letting China dictate to us what's happening in places like Myanmar and the atrocities that this coup has led, where they're killing innocent people in the streets. And I just think it's because American businessmen has gotten into bed, like you said earlier in this week, with a corrupt China that's almost—I mean—that's you know using communist tactics. So basically, they're winning the Cold War by corrupting our business people. With money or with whatever, with power. I and agree. basically, you know, um, we're allowing. And them. I completely
3: agree, Charles. And thank you. And this, and this is why we need to bring our manufacturing back home. Hey, special thanks to Louise Harmon, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce, The Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercote, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldyn Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabramaki, and Jay LeBlanc for helping make this program work. And thank you to you for participating, for listening, for sharing the good word. Get out there, get active, tag, you're in. Politics requires you, democracy requires you. We'll see you on Monday.
2: You've been listening to Tom Hartman.